Hey guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host, as always, Steve Hall, and today I have Menno Henselmans and Eric Trexler back on the podcast, but on the podcast together for the first time. And we are discussing everything that relates to cardio for the bodybuilder or the physique enthusiast, for fat loss, for health benefits, is there any benefits to nutrient partitioning or work capacity? What forms of cardio? What's the interference effect all about? Every question I could think of about cardio as it relates to that bodybuilder, I have it answered here for you today. So look forward to this. It's going to be a great chat. And as a reminder, we have our mini cut movement group coaching available to you. You can definitely check that out. And this is a group coaching format where we lose fat fast. We teach you along the way about how to best approach it. We give you your nutrition and training all covered. We've got templates for you in this group coaching format. So if you're interested in losing some fat, definitely check that one out. Otherwise, without further ado, let's get into the show. Hi guys, welcome back to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and today I'm very happy to have Eric Trexler and Menno Henselmans on the podcast uh, for the first time together on this podcast, but obviously they've met and spoken before, so uh, we don't have to like do lots of pleasantries here, and people on this podcast will know both of your names because you've both been on several times, and thank you so much for coming on because uh, this topic I'm I don't know. I don't know if it's right to say I'm excited about it because it's cardio, but uh, I'm excited to hear your guys's take on it because I haven't really seen it kind of uh, gone into to a huge extent in like the bodybuilding realm past like fat loss or I don't know fasted cardio isn't required for fat loss and like bits like this. There's been tidbits, but nothing in depth. So I'm excited to see your both takes on this because I'm I'm sure you've thought about it to quite a large extent. My first question is though, and I'm going to go to Menno, are you currently doing cardio? When was the last time you did formal cardio, if we can kind of formalize it to like, I don't even, we're going to define cardio next, but let's go with that. <laughs> I do, yes. Many years I have not done any cardio, but currently I, I've gotten into kickboxing, which is very strenuous cardio. In fact, I've, I don't think I've ever done anything as cardiovascular or cardiorespiratory intensive as kickboxing. The seems that the combination of the adrenaline of fighting combined with the cardio, like after round, a round of sparring, you, I can literally be gasping for air. Like I'm, I literally think like I can't breathe. So I definitely do cardio now. And um, I also do very mild cardio after my workouts. I'm still thinking if I need to add more cardio. I don't think so. I do usually like one all out bicycle ergometer sprint. Or what I sometimes do is like two minutes maximum speed walk on um, the Stairmaster on my toes, because it's very specific to kickboxing. You have to be on your toes and bouncing all the time. And I think those, because it's so short, it's essentially the kind of cardio you could get on a 20 rep squat or something. I think there won't be any interference effect with that. And it's, it's very time efficient. And uh, like you, I really don't like cardio. So <laughs> I'm, um, I'm, I'm choosing the route that's most time efficient for me. And I think kickboxing is also, compared to like regular boxing, for example, or wrestling, relatively easy on the cardio in contrast to what I currently already experience. Because it's usually like if you go by glory or K1 rules, it's like three, three minute rounds. Boxing is one <laughs> a hell of a lot longer. So we've given our biases already there uh, that me and Menno aren't keen on cardio. Uh, but so before you were doing kickboxing, 
was there limited? It was just your kind of resistance training and just generally yeah, not zero. being said. I, I started doing a little bit, but when um, I messed up my back and I couldn't do any squats, deadlifts. So my workouts were extremely non-cardio like it was almost all isolation work machine work sort of doing a little bit of cardio just because i felt like i was actually suffering from it like it, i could feel it when you walk up like long stairs or on holiday those kind of things although i also couldn't walk stairs for a long time so then i was like yeah <laughs> i think i actually need to do a little bit of cardiovascular exercise um i would say though that the idea of like bodybuilders being really having really poor endurance is generally flawed like they have worse endurance obviously than endurance trainees but it's better than that of the average person, especially a bodybuilder um, that does like high rep, high volume type work. It's like I said, it's going to be better than the average individual, just not as good as that of other athletes. Awesome. Eric, same question to you. What's, what's your cardio regime? <laughs> well, it's funny, uh, basically exactly the opposite story of Menos, I think, if I heard everything correctly. So um, I used to love cardio. And back in the day, I actually was a wrestler um, way back. Um, I can't hold a wrestling stance anymore with my, the way my back is lately. Um, it's a really tough position, um, to, to maintain for a few minutes at a time, but Menno, I totally agree. You get into any kind of combat sport, um, you know, with those short sparring sessions and it is a different kind of breathless when you're doing that kind of cardio. I mean, there were times in wrestling, you know, they crank up the temperature in the room uh to get everybody losing weight and it'd be a small room super humid you literally felt like you could not breathe uh so i i've definitely been there um, but my trajectory has been different where you know menno you mentioned you had been just lifting no cardio had an injury and started doing a little bit more uh i love cardio and and as recently as a year or two ago was was running really regularly um, but I just have these damn injury issues that, that keep bothering me when I do a lot of cardio. And so I've had to scale it back. And so now I'm kind of stuck where it's like I can only lift and do uh, some very specific forms of cardio. I've got um, an ilioinguinal nerve impingement. And so really a, a lot of stuff that involves large ranges of motion for my hip, they really make it flare up. And so uh, I do, uh, man, it hurts to call this cardio this young in life. Uh, you know, I used to think cardio is like, if you're not doing something crazy athletic, then it's not cardio. I walk a lot um, and because I, you know, I, I want to make sure I'm taking care of the the old ticker here and, and you know, um, maintaining a decent level of physical activity. So just within the last couple months, I got this little treadmill that only goes up to about three and a half miles an hour, but it's sitting in my office here, right, right off, off the corner here. And so uh, at various points throughout the day, I like to get up and, you know, just give it a good 20, 30 minute walk, breaks up my sedentary time, gets me some steps in. Um, so I'm not catastrophizing. I, I do expect that in the future, I will be able to get back into the type of running that I enjoy. But for now, taking it step by step, literally, and just doing a lot of walking. Thank you both for sharing your stories with cardio because I think it's actually interesting hearing kind of where you've come from, what your perspective is on it now, because that just comes to the individualization of even cardio, your goals and this sort of thing, which obviously are some of the things you have to take into consideration. But I guess um, we, I talked about defining cardio. So Menno, if you want to define cardio for you, kind of what, what do you see as cardio? Because I think a lot of people just like, I don't know, like they just see it as running. That is cardio. <laughs> but you mm. mentioned kickboxing. And Eric mentioned steps. So I'd love to hear your kind of thoughts behind like trying to define it maybe. Anything that evokes a strong cardiovascular response, I would define as cardio. So 
it's very close to endurance training. But for, for example, bodybuilding purposes, you can also do cardio with the primary intent of burning energy, which is quite a bit different, as we'll probably get into later, um, compared to doing cardio for endurance training adaptations. And yeah, I think pretty much anything that falls under that, that, that the hood of either endurance training or cardiovascular, strong cardiovascular stimulus is probably uh, definable as cardio. So it's like you said that, like high rep squats, it's doing your it's working your cardio <laughs> yeah it's it's i would say it's it's part cardio oh uh, yeah i guess it's part resistance training too so eric was is there anything you'd add to that um you know i remember back in the day like undergrad exercise science i think they would you involve in the definition some mention of kind of rhythmic repetitive movement of large muscle groups to an extent that elicits you know some elevation and cardiac output. I, I think that might hit some of the, the check boxes if we're doing the old definition game. Uh, but recently I wrote uh, a textbook chapter for NASM, NASM, and I got, I drew the short straw and had the, the cardio chapter and was like, okay, well, at least I'll learn something here. Um, and what I tried to do for that was just kind of create a structure of like, how are we going to define this stuff? Because they gave me the the title of the chapter and I said, I don't think the title even works for me, uh, the, the one that they recommended. Because again, it's like, what is, phys you know, physical activity, cardio, endurance training, aerobic training? Sometimes we use these things synonymously and they have overlap, but they're not quite the same. So I kind of made this big like, flow chart where there's physical activity and you can break it up into structured exercise or non-exercise physical activity and then within structured exercise we can break that into resistance training or cardio and of course there are things that overlap there but you know basic heuristics and then within cardio we break it down to steady state training versus interval training and then we break those down further into sprint interval training high intensity interval training moderate intensity steady state or low intensity steady state. So you can create this whole taxonomy of physical activity and kind of work within it to figure out what definition works for you. But, you know, well, that was one of the biggest first challenges with the chapter is what am I talking about? Am I talking about cardio? Am I talking about endurance training? Am I talking about aerobic training? Because the connotations are different across the board. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting, actually, because there is a lot of overlap there. It's kind of, you mentioned, like, uh, non-exercise physical activity, like maybe steps, like non-formally planned, like steps. It's like, well, if, if you have a step goal, is that now, like, does that now move it or shift it? Or I'm not sure. So, um, but I, I think back to, like, Menno's kind of thought there in terms of, like, using the cardiovascular system to a... a a uh, significant extent so anything that's kind of getting that going is going to be uh, using that so i think that's useful for people to kind of understand because I, again i think some people just box it off as like this can't be cardio this is cardio and it's like well actually you you can use you're using this even if you don't know you are um Mena, you mentioned the interference effect so i think that's a good place to kind of move to and i think I haven't seen it for a long time. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but there used to be always this example of this sprinter who was jacked versus this endurance runner who was like super skinny. And this was always like bodybuilders should not be doing cardio because look, you should be doing sprints. So I'd love to hear a bit of your thoughts behind maybe that meme, um, if I can call it a meme now, and then also the interference effect. Yeah, that was funny that uh, they were essentially the message was you should like not do cardio, you should do high intensity cardio. <laughs> but I think the latest meta-analysis actually found that 
um, inter that's high intensity interval training significantly reduced muscle growth but steady state cardio did not they did not formally do a between uh, group significance test i think I, I think there are very few studies that have although i think five at all did two studies that kind of found that work matched high intensity interval training what had greater interference effects than uh, again work matched steady state lower intensity cardio so if anything the, the trend currently is uh, more the more the opposite and that's probably because the interference effect is you could say it's a result of trying to push your body into the two different ends of the strength endurance continuum so if you have strong endurance adaptations and strong strength adaptations and if the kind of the anabolic windows of those two processes overlap so you're trying to do it at the same time then it seems that you're you're not getting the full effect of both and in particular strength training suffer so some studies find that doing cardio or endurance training however we define it alongside strength training in the same program in particular if it's in the same workout can reduce strength development power development and muscle growth and that that has been dubbed the interference effect or the concurrent training effect and there is now a lot of research um kind of debating it and i think a, a big part of that is because some studies look at untrained individuals and it's like yeah of course they, they can grow from anything and other studies look at trained individuals and african trained individuals it is a legitimate concern it's probably not as much of a concern as people thought say five years ago and uh, it's a concern that we cannot remedy with doing sprinting awesome eric have you got anything else you'd add to the interference effect in that discussion yeah so in the mass research review this is one of um mike zordos's favorite topics to write about and following his work over the last several years as being a co-author of the review it's just been a lot of whiplash um so th there have been meta-analyses by um S sabag and uh petre and schumann all within the last like three or four years and there have been others as well. Um, it, it feels like there's a different meta-analysis on concurrent training every six months, and they don't agree with each other um, in, in the, the nuanced details. So when you look from one meta-analysis to another, you'll find, you know, this one said you should go with high intensity, that one said you should go with low intensity, the other one said it doesn't really matter. And this one seems to find bigger effects for the lower body, this one for the, for the upper body, and the other one, it doesn't really matter. There's just, there's a lot of conflicting uh, findings in there, um, which, you know, gets back to the nature of a meta-analysis. Like you were talking about, Menno, it's like, well, in this meta-analysis, we we're looking at a more trained population. And in that one, we weren't. And, you know, and then even the studies where they, or the meta-analyses where they look at, did training status matter? There, there's some degree of conflicting uh, evidence. So uh, within each thing, you know, within each meta-analysis with concurrent training, you have to consider training status. You have to consider uh, what was the overall training load when you factor in with with the individual studies, resistance training and cardio? Because I don't think anyone would really push back against the assertion that the interference effect is pertinent and worth considering when you are doing a ton of resistance training and a ton of cardio. The human body can only deal with so much at a time. And so 
regardless of, you know, comparing beginners to intermediate trainees, when you start getting into really elite athletes who are pushing their training volume as high as it can possibly go with a high level of specificity, then you have to more carefully consider the cost of adding in additional training. So there are so many factors to consider in each individual study. Um, initially, there was this kind of seminal study. Um, uh, I forget the name of the author. I think it was Hickson. Yeah, Hickson in 1980, where they just put him through hell. <laughs> they just told the subject, we're just cardio up to 11, resistance training up to 11. And of course, they found a, a very large interference effect. It was more of a proof of concept type study of like, if we tried to make this impossible to recover from, will it be bad? And the answer is yes. Um, but in recent years, like Mena was getting at, some of that tide has turned a little bit and people have said, well, we might have overestimated um, you know, maybe the magnitude of the interference effect or how frequently it occurs in many practical scenarios. So you really have to factor in training status, specificity of training, and just the overall dose of total stuff to recover from. Um, and then one final uh, caveat I would put in there is that a lot of times when we look at the research, we we kind of say, does this interfere with strength stuff, right? So power, strength, hypertrophy. But I think one area where the meta-analyses tend to agree is that the interference effect impacts those outcomes uh, to differing magnitudes. So if you are only focused on hypertrophy, um, it's not to say the interference effect doesn't matter or exist, but it, it a appears to be a relatively modest magnitude uh, in many practical applications. Strength is impacted more than hypertrophy and power is impacted much more than strength or hypertrophy. So there's kind of a hierarchy there. Uh, but broadly speaking, you know, I, I think we would probably all agree that it is a pertinent concern, especially as you get into high training status, high level of specificity with your training. At a certain point, something's got to give and the interference effect is a reality. Yeah, I think that's really well explained. I think it gives, again, the nuance there in terms of like, it's not just the interference effect doesn't matter if it, it does matter. And I think people like those extremes of like the clear, oh, look, like the sprinter versus the guy that's doing endurance clearly don't do endurance training. It's less like that black and white answer, but it's going to depend on even probably individual to individual. I was literally talking to someone yesterday and they're like eight to 10,000 steps seems to impact their resistance training. And I'm like, wow, like I have clients consistently and myself included doing more than that every day. And I don't, like it doesn't bat an eye on me. So it's one of those things you probably can even notice within like your own application of it in terms of like, is it starting to have an impact? Menno, is there anything for you when you are doing cardio for that person who is that out and out trying to build as much muscle as possible? Is there anything you do with them that you think they should avoid in terms of practical application if they did want to do cardio, if they are thinking about doing any of it? Okay, so it basically comes down to strategies to minimize the interference effect. Because uh, primarily, I would say, if your goal is purely muscle growth or strength development, I would say, don't do cardio. It's It has potential negatives and not much of a positive. I think there was one study recently that found like in, in rank untrained individuals, you can do you can potentiate muscle growth by doing cardio first i don't think that's going to be relevant for a well-trained like bodybuilding type individual and but if you do want to do it for like for a bodybuilding purpose that would in my view be someone that's usually in contest prep and the cost of cardio is deemed less than the cost of decreasing energy intake 
So you might have to compromise on you know, nutritional deficiencies or uh, just insane hunger. At some point, you know, you have to compromise and that you can compromise either on energy intake or by doing cardio at that point in contest prep. And then I would say most important things is to, to separate the sessions because like I said, the, the interference effect seems to be largely, not entirely, a local transient effect. So if you separate sessions by like 24 hours, there doesn't appear to be much interference effect. And whereas if you do them directly together, especially if you do the cardio pre-workout, the interference effect seems to be worse because then you don't have just the, the interference effect of like the cellular signaling pathways, but you also have a direct detrimental effect of this cardio on the subsequent strength training session in terms of fatigue. So that would be like the, the worst thing you can do. And then I think, yeah, we have to get into specifics because if we're talking about a bodybuilder, the, the crucial distinction in my mind is that you're not doing the cardio for endurance training adaptations, you're doing it for energy expenditure. And that means that you can also get away with like lots of walking, a high step count, wearing a weighted vest maybe even, and doing very frequent kind of short cardio sessions. Like a very, what I like to do is so in the debate of like pre or post workout cardio, I often say both, like do an extensive warm up that's not enough to interfere with the session, but is maybe a little bit more than you would actually need. And then after the session, if you have to do it in the same session, also do a little bit extra cardio. And as long as both sessions are kept below a certain threshold of feeling like, you know, real endurance training, I don't think there will be much of an interference effect, but you have managed a high total energy expenditure. So there we really get into the distinction between, are we trying to burn energy or are we trying to stimulate endurance training adaptations? I think, uh, yeah, that was well just described. And that is essentially the question was like, do you even use cardio for that physique competitor who's just trying to build as much muscle as possible and i guess you gave your answer in terms of the way you view cardio for a bodybuilder is simply as energy expenditure and therefore what's the least invasive way to get that for that individual so that makes a, a load of sense there completely and eric i don't know if you have any different perspectives um in terms of cardio for bodybuilders if that's something you think they should be doing is there any benefits outside of just energy expenditure for them do you think in really, really extreme scenarios, if someone is extremely sedentary and they've been avoiding cardio like the plague for a very long time, I think there is a small number of strength and power athletes who might actually benefit from just building a slightly better kind of cardio respiratory base of endurance just in terms of getting through their workouts without feeling super lethargic. Um, perhaps there might be some kind of indirect recovery benefits of just being a slightly kind of fitter more active person in general so when when someone comes to me and their focus is strength or hypertrophy or competitive bodybuilding i don't necessarily say you know the best case scenario is no cardio but what i usually say is if we want to meet kind of standard guidelines for general you know physical activity for health we can probably hit way beyond that minimum threshold uh, before we get anywhere close to meaningfully introducing, you know, significant interference effects. In most cases, we can get up to a suitable level of physical activity that's generally good for overall health before we are doing such a high cardio load that we say, oh, crap, now we're really leaving some big gains on the table. And like I said, for some folks whose cardiorespiratory fitness level is really, really low, they might find even getting through their resistance training workouts is a little more tolerable if they build up that base a little bit. But I will acknowledge the caveat, 
if you just ramp up their training volume, they'll get with it eventually, right? They'll adapt to that and be able to tolerate that as well. So I'm not saying, yeah, you need to immediately come in with a cardio program for a strength and power athlete, but there might be some unique instances where it makes sense to kind of facilitate that boost in cardio respiratory fitness level. But with, uh, you know, with people who are really focused on building muscle, um, strength and power, then you start, I, I kind of just put together like a little list of heuristics um, when I was putting that chapter together. And this is more bodybuilding focused, but I totally agree with Menno that one of the most important things you can do is focus on timing. Um, so if you're going to have a, aside from like a little warm up, you know, like you mentioned, which I, I think is a really, uh, a really good strategy to take. If you're going to do like a really legit cardio session, you, you'd, if you had to do it before or after your lift, you'd rather do it after. But best case scenario is that you separate it by at least 24 hours. And with bodybuilders who are a really special population and ounces of muscle matter, I say if we can get away with 48 hours, great. Um, but 24 hours is, is kind of what the literature would indicate. And 48, I kind of reserve that for the the high intensity training sessions that um, that might wipe you out a little bit, um, not just, you know, in terms of, you know, local effects on the muscle, but just like, I mean, we've all been there. If, if you're a little bit calorie depleted and you're doing crazy, really intense, high intensity cardio, it does kind of take you a day or two before you're ready to go in and get like a legit squat or deadlift session in, in my experience personally. So I try to separate those things out um, to the, to, you know, to the best of our ability to kind of prioritize, okay, if tomorrow we're doing mostly accessory work for the upper body, maybe, you know, today or that day would be a good opportunity to do a, a high intensity cardio session because you'll be fine with your your lateral raises either way. <laughs> you know, your, your bicep curls are going to be fine. Um, and then within that, I try to just break things up into blocks, you know, so um, if we're doing like, um, I'm trying to remember the exact numbers I use. But I, I try to break up, yeah, so like if you're doing low intensity steady state, I say let's try to cap that as at an hour just as like a practical limit. Uh, moderate intensity steady state, I try to cap that at 45 minutes. High intensity interval, interval training or sprint interval training, I say let's try to trim that, even including rest periods, let's go no more than like 25 minutes or so. And then we just kind of distribute those units of cardio, these kind of cardio blocks throughout the week as much as we need to to facilitate the energy deficit but with the high intensity stuff uh the interval training type stuff i try to cap that to usually i mean no more than like two or three a week um just because uh steve you might you might have been around uh back when in the bodybuilding world natural bodybuilding everybody was doing like wind gates like modified wind gate protocols like every damn day during their prep I feel like the whole natural bodybuilding world was just stumbling around like a bunch of zombies, just absolutely <laughs> crushed. So I try, I try to prevent my clients from getting into that game and say, listen, we can do, there's nothing wrong with this high intensity interval training. And some metas would suggest that it might even be a better option, but others say it might be a worse option. So I try to mix it up. If, if we need to do more than two or three days a week of cardio, I say, let's get a mixture in there. So we're not just killing ourselves with the, the high intensity stuff. 
Yeah, I remember the only time I did it was my first prep. It was, I think it was Lar McDonald's rapid, uh, no, uh, stubborn fat loss protocol. And it'll be like doing a fasted cardio of some sort with some hit intervals within there. So uh, I do think that was a strategy quite a few people use. And yeah, that was pretty horrendous. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> that wasn't much fun. Um, actually, it's a good point you brought up the kind of list, miss, hit as well. Uh, Menno, do you have preferences? I think you mentioned steps and weighted vests are so more towards like lower intensity, steady state stuff. Is that more your preference, like step counts versus implementing kind of time doing one of these other kind of intensities? Yeah, if we're talking about a bodybuilder, so the goal is energy expenditure rather than endurance training adaptations, then I would favor low intensity because it's easier to manage in terms of, you know, like Eric said, high intensity work is you can really take its toll on other workouts. And I typically favor relatively high frequency training. So like 48 hours is often not even possible in uh, in many of my clients so there, there's just very little room to program in high intensity stuff and it's also not necessary it takes a big mental toll on people so i typically favor low intensity stuff if if we're talking about someone with the goal of just burning energy like you know increase your step count um weighted fast is something i haven't done much with clients but it's interesting uh, the research on like the gravitostat i'm very skeptical but for sure, just wearing something is going to increase energy expenditure. And it might be that that form of energy expenditure is less subject to constraint energy expenditure, which is another interesting line of research. Because uh, step counts probably will be subject to that. And otherwise, I just do like low intensity cardio, spread it out a lot, like a lot of short sessions. Do you not see the progress you would like? Are you sick of writing your own programs? Or perhaps you need some accountability in order to stick with the plan? Then it's time to start working with us. We at Revive Stronger offer a truly personalized coaching service. You'll get more than just an email with some macros or random cookie cutter program. With Revive Stronger, you will be the center of our attention. You will receive your own fully individualized training protocol alongside a customized nutritional strategy. We created the coaching around your needs, wants, personal preferences, and your own unique lifestyle. Every single week, we delve into your program in order to make appropriate adjustments so that we get the most out of your time and the best possible outcome. We help both female and male athletes to seriously change their body composition by adding more muscle mass and decreasing fat tissue. No matter if you're a competitive bodybuilder or just want to look better, if you need help with your progress and taking your physique to the next level, our coaching is for you. It's time to make a change, sign up today and let's revive stronger. Yeah, the weighted vest, I did that for my last prep and that was that was something um i'll probably use it for just my steps but wearing it all day at a standing desk was pretty horrendous <laughs> the mental toll uh that that produced but um so eric are you on the same lines there? i know i didn't want to like make it sound like you were suggesting you thought differently but uh do you think the same way to meadow there with uh for the out and out bodybuilder just looking to get more energy expenditure Oh yeah, my, my preference is to, to lean toward lower intensity interventions. And I, I actually, I mean, I, I like to tell a lot of bodybuilders like, hey, bodybuilding's tough. Um, also training for sprint type exercise is its own kind of tough. What if we can try to minimize the number of tough things we're doing? You know, so like, I'll say like, hey, if you've got a favorite podcast and it's, you know, 45 minutes long, Let's take a nice, enjoyable walk in the morning and the evening. You listen to half in the morning, half in the evening. I, I'm much, much more in line with, with what Menno's kind of advocating for, for bodybuilders and, and for just general kind of physique enthusiasts is let's do the low intensity stuff. It can be, 
not just uh, less dreadful than a really brutal sprint protocol, but it can actually be in, in some cases a little bit refreshing. You know, it can help you kind of clear your mind. It's a nice little break from the day, uh, clear your head a little bit. Uh, yeah, as much as possible, I like to tap into the, the easy wins in terms of cardio. Um, and then only when we feel like we really need to, or if there's a very good reason for it, do we start tapping into the higher intensity stuff. I mean, you're going to get folks who just say, I love it. I like to feel like I really did something today. And you say, okay, cool. We can work the higher intensity stuff in, or there might be some athletic reason for a non-bodybuilder where we really do need to target specific energy systems and physiological capacities. But for most folks, I, I really do like to advocate for finding creative avenues toward cardio or physical activity. Uh, I, I like to, you know, I've, I've had clients who say, I don't really like to run and you're saying we need to do cardio. So I guess we're at a dead end here. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll show them the, um, there, there's the uh, compendium of physical activity uh, from, from Ainsworth and colleagues. And they have the metabolic equivalent amounts, kind of the relative energy expenditure amounts for I think 821 forms of physical activity. So I said, okay, so we're down to 820, <laughs> um, but we're not quite at the dead end yet. We may get there, but I think we'll find something here that works. That's great. Yeah, I guess um, th th this discussion has been really good because I think you've covered off basically kind of what we're doing cardio for fat loss, um, kind of kind of gone into some recovery, uh, sorry, no, uh, performance improvements. You kind of talked about Eric there. Maybe if that person has a bad work capacity, potentially it would help kind of bring that up. Um, talked about the interference effect and then some other ones I wanted to talk about and you kind of brought this up Eric was kind of the recovery I don't think many people think about it it's a psychological recovery more people are thinking I don't know blood flow and things like this do you guys um, either one of you see it as like a recovery tool potentially I'll go Menno if you have any thoughts sorry you're um, just going to speak Eric <laughs> I don't think it's it's if it's intensive, it's not going to be beneficial for recovery. It's going to tank recovery. Like, it's going to take its own toll on recovery. And um, this is especially with high-intensity work, as Eric said. So we have some research, for example. One is an extreme example of a relatively recent study where they did, like, downhill kind of running. And one study, I think, by Kuchishi et al. or something, I'm guessing Japanese, where they found that sprint interval training, and I think this was, like, regular sprinting, reduced biceps strength development and growth, at least strength development, I think, by a considerable margin, even when they were done on different days. So if your cardio is just intensive enough, it seems to have the potential to reduce your gains even in unrelated muscle groups on other days. And I think it was 24-hour separation in this study. And that's probably due to some central mechanism, whether that's either central fatigue or um, competing with recovery resources. I think central fatigue, although I'm, I'm generally quite skeptical of that, is not is definitely something we can't rule out here. So it might be that you know, the fatigue limits the workout and the limit the reduction in power output or work output during the workout is what's causing the reduced gains more than the interference effect directly, although both might play a role. So you would have to to talk about active recovery. You you would have to talk about really low intensity work, and I think that's where things like walking and the like actually shine because they not only probably don't induce an interference effect, but they might actually be active recovery. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. That's kind of what I was getting at when I brought up the term recovery. It's kind of in two two different um, 
perspective. So one would be this kind of idea of active recovery, which could physiologically, you know, facilitate a little bit of recovery between sessions. But also I think, um, I think psychology is very powerful. And I do think for many of the people I've worked with, there is some kind of psychological component of even on off days, staying engaged with, with your physical activity and getting up and moving rather than sitting down. And every time you like kind of get up, you go, Oh, I'm so sore. You know, there's something about getting up and moving that, that does seem to psychologically help people with their preparedness for the next session, um, which, which I think is a valuable thing. And there could be some physiological elements of, of that active recovery as well. And then the other part was more just, um, you know, again, getting to that particular uh, use case where there's someone with, you know, very poor baseline cardiorespiratory fitness just for their recovery within session, set to set, exercise to exercise. You could argue that adding in a little bit of extra physical activity could help build up that base a little bit more efficiently so that they can maintain a higher level of work output throughout the entirety of that workout. Or it could just be, frankly, a more tolerable workout. So again, I do want to acknowledge the caveat that people will adapt to the training program you give them. And so if you stick with a training style long enough, they will probably build up that cardiorespiratory fitness level to the amount that they can complete that workout uh, to a satisfactory degree. Um, but a little bit of extra physical activity can just kind of speed that process up a little bit. Perfect. No, that's very well explained. Um, so the, the benefits, I guess, for the out and out bodybuilder or physique competitor are looking slim. But this is one other thing that I do see uh, come up is better nutrient partitioning. So particularly um, after meals to try and potentially aid digestion, help with blood sugar levels. Is this something that I'm almost, I don't want to put it out there because I'm like, I don't want someone to become that anal where they're thinking about nutrient timing and then also the timing of this. But um, is there any benefits there? Is that something that you would consider kind of giving to a competitor that wanted to nail everything? Uh, Menno. Uh, another P-ratio debate. <laughs> so <laughs> I think in terms of P-ratio, like the muscle to fat gain or loss ratio, there, there's not going to be an effect. I know that there is interesting research on diabetics that eating, and there was recently even, I think, a meta-analysis. They found that it's even better to, um, definitely not my area of expertise, but I think it was even better to eat or to exercise or at least walk after the meal than before, which is kind of in contrast to what I would imagine, because if you do it before, you enhance insulin sensitivity, then you eat and you have a better insulin sensitivity. But being active during the digestion actually also seems to have really positive effects on blood sugar management and the like, which also makes sense because you, you have kind of a reservoir for taking up blood sugar um, with exercise. So I think you, you get those kind of benefits for diabetics that's relevant. For like a bodybuilder, I don't think you're going to meaningfully affect uh, like your gains. How are you feeling, Eric? Yeah, I mean... Um... I just love being able to agree with Menno about partitioning. <laughs> it just it brings so much warmth <laughs> to my heart. Uh, now, um, when it comes to that kind of, I, I agree for like long-term partitioning of gains in tissue, I, I can't imagine you're going to find an effect at all. Um, you know, managing blood glucose excursions and blood insulin excursions uh, or responses has become really popular lately, even among people who really don't need to be thinking about it much. You know, so like Menno said, if you're talking about type two diabetes and you'd like to reduce some of your reliance on medications, or if you're pre-diabetic and you don't want to get to that stage where you need to start 
implementing medications and not anti-medication, but if I could walk instead of using a medication, I'm going to prefer to walk if I can get to the same outcome. So, um, cause the side effects of walking are extremely positive in many different directions. Right. So, um, with, with diabetes management, um, it might be something I would look into because in many cases you are kind of pulling out all the stops. You're pulling every lever that you can to say, we really want to manage, manage this in the most effective way possible. But I've become really cognizant lately of trying to nudge folks who have totally normal glycemic control away from thinking about glycemic control because nowadays there, there's all of the you know continuous glucose monitoring and you've got people saying like oh man if, if i have you know a small bowl of oatmeal i'm done for the day i'm screwed and it's like dude you're you're totally fine and that that glucose excursion was completely within the normal range and your body put it exactly where it needed to go in a normal time frame. So I try to nudge people away from getting too worked up about that stuff. So, you know, the, the only application where I could see using this for someone who, you know, is not in that particular use case or, or scenario where they really should be managing glucose excursions carefully uh, or thoughtfully, I would maybe consider it if there's someone who just says, you know what, after these meals, I'm just feeling so sluggish. And at that point, it's just kind of a subjective measure you can take. I, I have noticed that if I'm ever feeling sluggish after a meal, uh, you know, I, I don't have any glycemic control issues that would be clinically relevant, but sometimes just getting up and moving, you might notice some subjective improvements in your kind of perceived energy level, maybe some modest benefits for digestion. So I would consider that, but with, with uh, you know, healthy, active folks, the only thing I really talk about with partitioning is just if we are doing any kind of carb loading or carb reduction or you know glycogen depletion strategy then we start talking about you know kind of specific protocols for when are we introducing carbs and are we maximizing our ability to take those up but that that's we're talking for bodybuilders peak week and for most people basically never yeah yeah i think that's very well explained yeah and that i guess it's that biohacker community kind of growing and influencing some bodybuilders and i guess people again bodybuilders are that i've been speaking as a bodybuilder with that type of person that tries to find any way to like improve our result especially i don't know natural bodybuilders we don't have so many things to pull on or push in in some ways uh to take to to help us so we kind of yeah try and find any kind of possible rationale for something to be beneficial so it's nice actually i think for that individual to be like actually i'm doing everything i can let's just like be less stressed and not have to worry about walking around the block after i've eaten my bowl of oats or whatever it might be so um that's really cool i guess um in summary for me at least the benefits seem to be kind of more on the spa side for that person that is that physique competitor who's resistance training a lot, already doing quite a good number of steps, had a good, has a good cardiovascular base. They're more so using cardio probably for them as a way to burn energy. So they're probably better kind of keeping it away from workouts. Lower intensity styles are probably preferable for them. But to kind of put another perspective in here, um, I guess as an aging bodybuilder, it comes to mind more kind of the health kind of thoughts behind cardio and whether or not there should be some in there for, I guess, cardiovascular health and well-being for that individual who is doing, again, like four to six resistance training sessions a week, hypertrophy style, higher volume, decent step count, you'd imagine 8,000 steps plus. Is that person someone who should consider cardio 
within their protocol for improvements in health. I know health is almost quite a wide term even to put out there, but um, is there anything you kind of, any thoughts that come to mind for either of you? I'm going to give it to Eric first, just because I've been giving it to Meadow first every time. <laughs> yeah. So specifically you brought up the aging example, and I really don't think that an aging bodybuilder from my perspective needs a, a significantly higher focus on cardio just because uh you know helms uh, eric helms wrote a review recently for uh the mass research review looking at like protein needs in aging athletes and one of the things that's really fascinating when you look at these changes with aging it's not that they don't exist but it's that they are quite significantly attenuated if you maintain a really high level of activity so like um you know you might look at two sedentary people one of them is 30 one of them is 70 years old and for the 70 year old you'd say yeah i mean we probably have a lot of chronic systemic inflammation some cardio might help us you know get ahead of that and manage it more effectively but if you're someone who's been doing this kind of active bodybuilding lifestyle in your 30s 40s 50s i don't think you need to get to the age of 54 and say all of a sudden i need to double my step counts every day i, I think you know if you want them to drift upward that would be fine if you wish but I, I think you've really been doing the things over the last few decades to put you in a spot where you you know what you're already doing should really be attenuating a decent amount of the modifiable component of that inflammation we associate with aging it's not to say it's not going to occur at all but you know to the extent that it's modifiable or can be attenuated you're already doing a lot of the right things there in, in my opinion um and you know i, I do want to say like it's important to highlight the caveats that you put on your summary there so we talked about you know these benefits being pretty modest pretty sparse assuming you're already pretty active you're training uh pretty hard and you've got decent step counts i don't want to convey the idea that as long as you're lifting three days a week you have no need for physical activity outside of that i mean that's obviously not what you're getting at but those little caveats at the end are really important you know because we do see even if you're lifting you know well there's not enough research to really sort through that but <laughs> I feel very comfortable saying, even if you're lifting, we do see some degree of a dose response relationship between things like step counts or just general activity level and long-term health outcomes. Now, those benefits flatten out at some point. Okay. So I don't want to make it seem like you should always be shooting higher, but I would say if you're a bodybuilder and you're lifting hard, but you're getting, you know, 3000 steps a day, you'd probably rather get seven or 8,000 steps a day, you know, and you can, everyone can set their own level where they think enough is enough. Um, so I, I do think it's important to state that. And also to state that even for competitive athletes who are doing more cardiovascularly demanding activities than just a bodybuilding resistance training workout, even among athletes, we do see some benefit of limiting sedentary time to an extent. You know, so th there are some studies indicating that even for athletes, if, if all you're doing is going to your team workouts and your lifting session and outside of that, you're fully sedentary, there are probably some health related benefits to be obtained from just working a little bit more activity into the day. Um, so I, I did want to make sure we highlight that. So assuming that you're kind of meeting those bare minimum guidelines for physical activity, then yeah, a bodybuilder probably doesn't need to do a whole bunch of extra cardio on top of that. You know, it's not like back in the day, I feel like every bodybuilder was like, well, if you're a bodybuilder, you're on the step mill for 45 minutes in the morning, right? Like that was just seven days a week. We probably don't need all that. Um, but, but yeah, so to directly answer your question, I think there is a role for 
whether you call it cardio or physical activity, there's a role for that in supporting health beyond lifting four days a week. Um, but the the positive thing is you don't have to do all that much. You know, if, if you're just hitting kind of bare minimums for step counts or spending 30, 40 minutes a day being pretty active, you're, you're probably doing plenty. Do you have a, you mentioned like a 3000 step count, get that up maybe seven or 8,000. Do you have like um, do you encourage a certain number to a client who is coming to you? I know like obviously everyone has their different, like some people might be getting a thousand. So you're like, I'm not going to give them 8,000. That's a huge increase. But is there just like a general recommendation, a rule of thumb that you're like, at this point you get a lot of the benefits and it starts to tail off a bit here. And it seems to be something that most people can achieve. Yeah. I mean, the meta analyses disagree. Uh, which is a common thread <laughs> that we've talked about here. So long gone are the days where in the fitness world, you could just find one meta-analysis and say, well, looks like we solved that. Um, so the meta-analyses disagree about if and when that relationship plateaus. There are some that say, yeah, we tracked it all the way to 17,000 steps and it slowed down, but it never flattened. And then there's others that say, yeah, once you get above like eight or 10,000, it's just completely flat. So in the interest of being pragmatic, what I usually do if I'm working with someone is I'll say, okay, we're at 3000. I don't know where the exact number is, but it's higher than 3000, right? Where we want to kind of say we've, we've got enough of, of what we're looking for here. So I'll start by saying, let's try to increase it by one or 2000. So we'll go 3000 to 5000 say, okay, is this tolerable? Is it, does it work with your schedule? Are we feeling okay about it? Um, and then we might make another step. We kind of work our way into that eight to 10,000 range. Uh, and then we just kind of every, every time we make a jump of one or 2000, we see how it's going. Do you feel like you're recovering better or worse or the same from your training? Uh, like I said, is it imposing schedule constraints that are just not going to work for you? In some cases, we'll find that people, they fall in love with it. They love walking and they're like, wow, I never thought I'd like this. And so all of a sudden they're saying, Hey, I know we're at 10,000, but can we try Can we bump to 12? And we, we say, sure. Yeah. Let's see how it goes. You know? So that's kind of my approach is I, I always try to be really pragmatic with coaching and, you know, there's a big gap between the newest meta analysis and what's going to work for your client and their preferences and their goals. So I start one or 2000 at a time. We play it by ear. We communicate well, and usually somewhere in that, you know, seven to 12,000 range is where I think a lot of people are going to settle. Really well explained. Menno, have you got anything in addition to what Eric said there? Yeah, I fully agree. I think I might be slightly more skeptical of the need for more activity because if we're at the point where we, we don't have a lot of research on this, we're kind of looking at what's the, the, the holy trifecta, if you will, if we have the three parameters of physical activity like endurance training, strength training, and then general physical activity level like step count what's sort of the optimum balance, right? And as Eric said, it, it depends on the levels of each. You can't just say like, this is the best one of this. I think the latest meta-analysis found like 8K step count is, is about where the le levels drop off. But as Eric said, that is really going to depend on where the other levels lie and which other data you look at. So maybe a, a goodest guideline is any to go with, you know, 8,000 if you need one number. But let's say you have an individual that's uh, like me doing daily strength training, like full body workout more bodybuilding type training so relatively high volume and you know not like I'm not, i don't go over five reps it's quite some high rep work and the like so there's a certain cardiorespiratory cardiovascular stress in that and you're not completely sedentary but you're probably also not very active 
what are the benefits of adding either cardio or uh, a higher step count to that? Like we don't have a lot of research on this because we're usually we're looking at people that are you know low on everything. Like in the general population, everyone is low on everything, and we have some people that are okay on some measures, and then we see, well, you add a little bit more of the other, it's still good. But what if you have someone that's really maxing out one of the three? You know, so you could say the same for someone with a 20k step count. Does adding cardio to that still make a difference? Well, we do know that these things have different types of health benefits, especially strength and endurance training with endurance training traditionally being more highlighted for its cardiovascular health benefits, which is probably on average accurate or justifiable. So probably, yes, some cardio is going to be good cardiovascular wise, but you run into plateau effects on everything relatively quickly. If you look at all these, all these dose response curves, step count seems to be the one where actually there is the, the least uh, plateau. Uh, like Eric said, like 8, 8K and some research finds, you can go even higher. And endurance training and strength training, they plateau quickly. We're talking about just a few hours per week in most research. I think one meta-analysis found that one hour was, was the max with strength training recently. And even found uh, that, there were, that the effects were worse when you got higher, which makes no sense in light of the total body of evidence. And... There was also one study, I think a pretty nice one, because it was like a two-year study on elderly individuals. And they were already quite physically active. And then they added two cardio sessions per week, and that made no difference in their all-cause mortality. So it's it's clearly not the case that you know you need that, you need those at least one to two free cardio sessions. Uh, otherwise, you're gonna die at age 50. And it's we simply don't really have good research yet on where the optimum lies if you want to maximize your longevity. It will probably depend on the individual. And I think one thing I would like to add is that with health, for one, you have plateau effects. And two, something's going to kill you. And that's that's something where I think people think, well, we just optimize our health and then we, we're going to live forever, right? And for me, for example, I have really strong familial um, risk of cancer on my mother's side. Like it's, I think she has, she has 11 siblings. And so far already uh, five are down due to cancer, including her mom too. So for me, there is a pretty big chance that at some point I'm, I'm gonna get cancer. So I can have like the best diabetes, best cardiovascular health and the like, but it's not gonna impact my longevity uh, if you know that's, that's the thing that's gonna get me. Same if you have like high genetic risk, everybody probably has some risk that's higher than others. If you have like really high risk of um, heart disease, then that's, you know, what's going to get you. You can have the best insulin sensitivity in the world because you're doing more strength training, getting more jacked, but it's not going to matter because that's not in the end what's going to get you. So that kind of aligns with the idea of um, there will be plateau effects. And it's really important, I think, to to measure like, you know, how, how sustainable is everything and how, how is it fitting your overall lifestyle? Because it's, if it's giving you stress and you don't feel sustainable, that, that it itself might have a bigger negative effect on your health than the benefit of that that one extra hour of cardio or something. So yeah, that's basically, we don't really know yet. Uh, I'm skeptical of the need to do much, but probably for optimum benefits, you would want at least a, a bit of everything, step count being one of the more um, surefire ways to have some benefits for regardless of the other two parameters. And I may probably a little bit of cardio and well, strength training is actually for health, maybe not that important, but most of the listeners here are probably good in that regard. 
Yeah, and if I could add a couple of things, I mean, I totally agree that, you know, when we look at the number in these meta-analyses for step counts, we're basically assuming that everything else is being ignored, you know, that, that people are not lifting regularly, they're not doing a lot of structured cardio. And so absolutely, I, I would agree with your perspective that we can probably shave a little bit off of those numbers if we say, oh, by the way, I lift four days a week with high volume resistance training and I do a cardio session every Saturday, you know, so we do have to kind of move these different pieces around. And I would also add one thing that might be um, overstating potentially the health related benefits of high step counts is I do wonder to what extent um, high step counts are more of a correlation than a causative factor. I, I do believe that there is some degree of causation involved that limiting sedentary time, breaking it up throughout. The, I do believe that that is beneficial to health. But if you look at a 70 year old who's doing 12,000 steps a day and a 70 year old who's doing 3000 steps a day, their entire lives look different. You know what I mean? I mean, they are engaged in completely different activities. They likely have different social circles. You know, I mean, and when we look at longevity and aging, I, I know people like to stay just on the physiology, but I mean, having strong social support and close ties to people around you in some studies does seem to be an independent predictor of longevity and health outcomes as we get into our 70s, 80s and beyond. So to some extent, you could argue that the step counts are a little bit inflated in these meta-analyses if you are someone who's lifting and doing structured cardio on top. And, you know, they, they might also just be factoring in uh, some signal of a completely different lifestyle and completely different set of circumstances for someone as they age. Um, so there's a lot that goes into these rough estimates. And I agree that, you know, it, it's really surprising to people who lift a lot when you look at how little lifting you need for, you know, quote unquote, optimization of health. I mean, if, if someone said, Eric, I just want to live a very long time, I'd say, well, let's take a couple walks a day, try to get a decent step count, do some higher intensity cardio, and maybe lift twice a week, full body sessions. And we should, I mean, we should be maxing things out in, in that scenario. Um, and really with, with resistance training, it's, it's not even so much about health. I mean, of course, health is, is a broad term, but a lot of times it's just independence and resiliency that we're training for as we age, right? So the ability to get up and out of a chair, up and out of bed, uh, it, it's, it sounds like a small thing for young, healthy folks, but toileting becomes a major threat to independence as we get older, you know, getting up, up and down off of a toilet. So when we talk about lifting for aging, a lot of it has to do with just functionality, maintaining balance, maintaining the ability to ambulate. Um, so yeah, it, longevity and optimization, there, there's a lot that goes into it. It's probably not just taking resveratrol supplements, but there's a lot of other stuff you can do. Guys, thank you so much for this. I think that was very, very well explained. And particularly, I think, where you framed that meno where like people are considering these almost independently, these variables, but it's like they all come into their own. So if you have, uh, I've had clients before who maybe resistance train four times a week and they live in the US and some cities aren't very walkable. So their step counts yeah. like 2000, 3000. They're like, can I just do some like low intensity, steady state cardio? like surrounding my workouts or on an off day. And I'm like, yeah, totally. That's that we can kind of get our 
health benefit or the the benefits we're going to get from what we would get from steps through this kind of cardio. So it's kind of like finding your balance. If you're really low on one of them, maybe you need to go higher on another. But a lot of the listeners are going to be super high on the resistance training aspect. I imagine a lot of them have a good step count or they can play with step counts and cardio and particularly like that lower intensity steady state probably if they're kind of more kind of on the physique aspect and they're going for their bodybuilding goals. So I think this has been a really productive chat. I don't know if either of you have anything else you want to add about cardio any additional perspectives otherwise uh, i'm really i think this has covered everything i wanted it to um maybe one thing that uh, was interesting is mostly related to health there, there's some research that uh, the um the um, the most of the health benefits are due to the prevention of sedentary time rather than the actual activity time so that's another way to kind of think about it because if you're going like, if you want a 20K step count and you're gonna do it in like one long ass walk, that, that's probably not gonna have the same effect as being active throughout the day. Because you're, that's the idea also with someone that's like going to the gym once a day and then the rest of the day you're completely sedentary, then you're still sedentary a whole lot of time, you know? And you probably can't compensate for that with that one hour in the gym. So that's the way to do it. And it also doesn't have to be a step count because I think you both mentioned uh, that you have standing desk and or a treadmill desk. And those are great ways to be um, a lot more active for very low mental effort comparative to um, you know, forcing yourself to uh, do walks if that's not something you enjoy doing. That's really well stated actually. That's something that flashed through my head and I'm glad you came back to it was with the steps because I have actually been asked before what's the difference, if any, between like 10,000 in one go and 10,000 threats spread through the day. And my initial thought was 10,000 in one go is a lot of walking to do in one time. Like, I don't mm. know what's going on there. But um, I'm glad you mentioned that, that there could actually be some independent effects of just spreading that through the day. So if someone is considering it, they want to kind of try and stay somewhat active through the day, not just like sat and dead for like eight hours or whatever. Yeah, and I think that's a great point. And if I go back and listen, I think there's a couple of times where I talked about walking and I just kind of, without bringing a lot of attention to it, mentioned take a walk in the morning and the evening or, you know, take a walk before and after a meal or something like that. But it kind of baked into that is the assumption, the unstated assumption that breaking these things up throughout the day and breaking up that sedentary time is a uniquely beneficial thing versus just doing a single walk of, you know, 10 or 12,000 steps. So uh, I totally agree that if you're someone who, you know, for me, like Steve, you brought up a great point. I live not just in America, but in a really rural part of America. I can't walk anywhere. Uh, and even when I do walk, I'm on, you know, in the dirt off the side of the road. There's no sidewalks. Uh, I think one of those like housing websites where you see like, uh, you know, real estate stuff, I think the housing or the walking score for my area is like zero out of a hundred or maybe like one. So um, yeah, like there are gonna be people who say, I can't really feasibly get that many steps. What can I do? The answer is literally anything. I mean, you know, we can, if we can't get 12,000 steps a day or 10 or eight or whatever you want, we can do some structured cardio at the gym when we have an opportunity and we can do something, you know, I, I don't like the name for this. It seems kind of cheesy to me, but like there's literature coming out about what they call exercise snacks, which is just like taking just a couple minutes, literally every few hours or every couple hours to just get up, move, and then get back into your seat. You know, it, it's kind of designed for 
a, a typical corporate workplace where you can say, hey, go in the stairwell, go up and down a couple flights. No one will notice you're gone. You're good to go. So there's so many different ways to be active, to get step counts, to get your heart rate up, to break up your sedentary time. And so it, it's really important that, that people understand that there are so many different levers that we can pull here and health optimization can take a lot of different forms. So if you feel like you're in a corner and you don't have any good strategies out, that's definitely not the case. There are a lot of different ways that you can incorporate some of these things without going so extreme that you're gonna invite this tremendous interference effect that's gonna get between you and your lifting goals. Very well said, Eric. And on that note, I think I'll close it there and just say again, massive thank you for you guys coming on. If people want to make sure if they're not already following you both, I recommend they do. But if they want to kind of see more of your work and uh, kind of get a piece of the, uh, your education, where should they head? Uh, Menno, go ahead. Yeah, I'm on Instagram and YouTube, most active. YouTube being recently uh, uh, engaged there. And yeah, my website is uh, menno.com. You'll find everything there. Fantastic. I'll make sure that's linked below. And Eric, the same. Yeah, you can find me uh, at on Instagram. I'm at Trexler Fitness. Uh, you can find my stuff at strongerbyscience.com. And you can check out the Macro Factor Diet app. We launched it less than two years ago. Uh, if you're looking for a nice, convenient calorie tracker, macro tracker, macro tracker, and it also has uh, built-in coaching. So you put in your goal, whether it's weight loss, weight gain, maintenance, and it'll give you recommendations to keep you on track. Fantastic. Guys, thank you for listening and we'll catch you in the next one. Take care. Thanks. Losing weight fast while maintaining muscle mass. Sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? It isn't though. It's reality and we know how to do it and we will help you achieve this. The Minicup Movement is an eight-week fat loss program to make you lose a huge chunk of fat while maintaining muscle mass at the same time. We will support you from the beginning to the end so that you see the results you would like to and come out of it much stronger. You will receive a fully automated spreadsheet that is based on your nutritional needs. You can choose between six different male and female training templates. Over 30 videos will guide you through each and every single step of the minicut so that you're getting the most out of your journey and that you always know what to do. But the best thing is that you can start whenever you want. The Minicup movement is open 24-7. So if you want to learn more or you're ready to sign up, hit the link in the description below. So let's revive stronger together.